What does it take to become an elite 40k player? How do the top competitors overcome bad dice? The Competitive 40k Network presents Art of War Unbroken. Insight into the game plans of the top players on the planet with your hosts, Blake Law and the Art of War Coaches. Hello and welcome to Art of War Unbroken. Champions may lose, but their spirits remain unbroken. I'm your host, Blake Law. This is episode 12 of the podcast. We're glad you're able to join us today. What this podcast is all about, it is about learning from your losses. We interviewed elite players, the top of the top, the best of the best. We break down their mistakes and how they learn from them. We talk about a game in which they played another high caliber player, took a loss, and we go back and we look at maybe why they thought maybe they lost that game. How often have you blamed a game on bad dice? We've all done it, and that's what we aim to debunk today in this show. You've all heard of the Yellow Rose of Texas, but what about the White Scars of Texas? Let's head down to the Lone Star Open, where our guest had an absolutely dominating performance with White Scars this last weekend. He made the top eight cut with White Scars, losing narrowly to Necrons in the round of eight. This is part one of the episode, so in this episode, we'll talk about the game, we'll analyze it, we'll talk about common mistakes, we'll talk about the secondaries that he took, we'll talk about the target priority, and we'll just, just do a really deep look into the game and, uh, and what went on during it. In part two of this episode, join us later for subscribers only. We will dive into this, the strategy, list adjustments, how he plans to adjust to the meta, and just that elite player mindset going into the games. My co-host today, back from the dead... Before there was Art of War, there was Nick Nottavani's Brown Magic. My co-host has a similar nickname, White Cheddar, because we all know him for his very cheesy list. He's a culinary legend where he invented the both Chef Boyardee and the Outback Steakhouse signature dish. He's a nine-time member of Team USA. He's won Adepticon 2012. He's won Adepticon other times that I do not know. He is a three-time top eight LVO finisher. He is the current Armed Forces GTO, GT champion. He won ACO this year, Mr. Brad Chester. Hooray for Brad. <laughs> I'm Brad, psyched up, man. I'm, I, yeah. I wish I could have gone to the Lone Star. I'm, I'm excited to hear more about it. And I've got so many – I've got so many – tournaments going up that I'm super excited and I'm not going to lie I'm hoping to win them all so I don't have to tell you why I lost but when I do because everybody loses I will figure out why and be right here again I am chomping at the bit man I'm ready to bring you on as a guest I don't know who I'm gonna get to co- co-host with me I'm gonna get someone really wild get a wild card like Mark Perry or someone to come on and just just drill you all right our guest today like a phoenix emerging from the ashes of 5th edition. Our guest has made a glorious return during COVID in ninth edition. He is back. He finished 6-2 and two at the Dallas Open, losing to All-Stars with John Lynn and Sean Naden. He won the W4 Warhammer uh, 40K GT in April, and he finished top eight this last week at the Lone Star Open, Mr. Oliver Smith. <sighs> Oliver, I, I got to know, are you a, Badgers, a Wisconsin Badgers fan? Because I kind of saw something on the internet. I am a Wisconsin Badgers fan, but I would say I'm more of a Bucks fan if I uh, 
I'm truly honest with you guys. We just won the championship. I'm super stoked. You know, I thought for just a second you were going with my Ohio State Buckeyes, but then I realized, well, you're just talking about the Milwaukee Bucks. So, and then I got sad. Well, if we're talking about the Bucks, I feel like you can't talk about the Bucks without talking about Bobby Portis, and he's an Arkansas Razorback. So that's our gift to the Bucks. He's got the key to the city. I'll tell you that right now. We really want him back. Oh yeah, I I am I'm a diehard Bobby Portis fan. So by default, I guess I'm now a Bucks fan. So that, that's good. That's good because y'all want it. So that's fantastic. All right, man. How about we just dig right into it? You tell us a little bit about the Lone Star Open, where it was, just how many players, all that jazz. Yeah, so the Lone Star Open was about 165 people. It was in Dallas, Texas, again, at a great venue uh, run by Frontline Gaming. And uh, the I think the biggest um, quirk to the tournament was the player place terrain. And I will say I've had a lot of player place terrain experience in the past going to Adepticon most years. Um, but, uh, and I was skeptical because of how that player place terrain went, because typically it means there's less or not enough. But uh, going to this event and doing player place terrain on each half and having most of it obscuring or actually blocking true line of sight was a really big benefit to my army and uh, kind of, um, I would say, mixed armies and melee armies. That's one of the things I was really looking forward to. I wish I could have attended because I really like the player place terrain on your half of the board. So there wasn't a gamesmanship. I mean, they did it for years at Adepticon. A lot of the Midwest tournaments did where they had player place terrain. And what happened is every time one of the players either put, you know, open terrain in the middle, whoever won the thing, or put a huge thing uh, blocking in the middle. I love the fact that it was just your side of the board. So you got to really, you couldn't mess with your opponent and both people had good deployments because you already set it up. Exactly. You you pre-measured exactly where you want to be. So that really intrigued me. I will say that winning the roll off to place the first piece of terrain did have some advantages because you could deploy right on the line or deploy one of your larger pieces, which can be harder to fit. Um, kind of exactly in the spot you want. So there definitely was some advantages, but there wasn't this janky, I'm going to put something right in the middle of your two objectives on your opponent's side so they can't hide behind anything. There was definitely enough coverage because the obscuring key- keyword was on everything. And I really gave uh, I gave Reese and I gave Kicker some feedback about, about the player place terrain and, and the obscuring keyword, and that was such a big deal. Did y'all know that there was going to be like just straight up top eight or was there ever talk of a shadow round going into the uh, final eight there? Wasn't enough people for a shadow round, I'm pretty sure. There, was, it, it was in the, in the posting, there was supposed to be a shadow round. But then second day, I talked to Nate and Nate said there was no shadow round. And as Brad said, I'm assuming it's because there was just not enough people. I mean, there was plenty of five and ones, but. So I definitely think there was a cutoff between there was only a few, there's maybe three, five and ones that missed. So, yeah, whenever I was looking at, cause I was watching y'all stream there at the end and I was thinking like, uh, I think there was actually some confusion. I heard somewhere on one of the streams, like something about a five to 12 shadow around. So I was sitting there waiting, like, is it, is it going to happen? And I, uh, I think that their, uh, their tournament packet, I think just default says they have a shadow round. So it's covered. 
if they need ones. But I, th- ah. I think I think they just don't take it out. Uh, so it's just always in there. So I could be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure that's what they have in default. Just so people know if they do have you know a situation where they have enough people where they need a shadow round, that it's already kind of pre-done so you're not surprised by it. What's the cutoff for that? Just for future for people listening, because I know there, I think there was a little bit of, of a air of of confusion around that. It's basically five through twelve would play in a shadow round if they had a shadow round. Okay, yeah, that makes that makes sense. But uh, that's awesome. Well, man, oh, you did a great job at this event, man. I I was watching it most of the weekend, and you only lost uh, you lost one during the uh, regular six six game round then you ended up losing to that uh that crazy necron list there in the round of eight and uh i'm really excited to talk about that necron game you had because i watched it and it seemed like a really cool like hard fought game between the two of y'all run us through your list real quick because i want to i want to hear also i need to know is there any point in time where you yelled for the con to get yourself to make sure you made a charge 100 percent you know, it's funny you say that. One of my buddies that went with me mentioned that he didn't fail a, ch- a single charge roll all weekend. And I looked at him and I said, I didn't fail a charge roll either. But I'll be honest, I think the longest charge roll I had to make was about a seven all weekend long. So I didn't have to yell for the con because we have a 3D6, pick the two highest. And every time it's a six or a seven and I absolutely need it, I always do that first for white scars. That's when you uh, you whisper for the con, you know, it's a seven inch charge. You're like, oh, just God. in case, yeah, just, just in just case. case, yeah. You just, your you're like, I don't need all of the con's power. I just need a little push, just behind me. But I can run through my list if you guys want. I'd love you. Yeah, to. absolutely. So it's just a single Vanguard detachment, which is controversial because I run zero troops choices. I have, of course, Kasoro Khan, uh, just because I need a cheap captain, and he basically gives an extra buff. Um, I have a Primaris Tech Marine, and he has a Warlord trait, Rights of War, to give me some obsec. He also has a cool little tech piece. Uh, I'm not sure what the what the relic is called, but it basically lets one unit within six in the shooting phase ignore cover, which is great for what's coming next. My three Volkite Contemptor Dreadnoughts. Hunter's Eye. Hunter's Eye. That's right. Um, so I have the three Volkite Contemptor Dreadnoughts. I have 25 Vanguard veterans. I have uh, two units that don't take up a force org slot and company veterans and servitors just to be little action monkeys. I have two units of five multi-melted devastators, uh, devastators with four multi-melters, that is, and they ride in a rhino. And white scars have a cool trick where they can get out after it's moved. They can also double move the rhino and get out after it's moved and then still shoot or perform actions, which has come in handy. Um, then just to top round out the list, I have two land speeder storms to help me screen and get engaged and oath points early. I like that. I love the fact that people forget how far a white scars devastator unit can get in any given turn. It's like it just hasn't been seen a ton. I love that tech when I looked at your list. How often were you able to get that hole, even after you're describing it to people? How often were people just surprised at the sheer basically the angles you could take after doing that. Um, I did catch a few people off guard. I always told them exactly how far it would go and what exactly it could do. But uh, one game I played against a Dark Angels player, and I just happened to roll a, a six on my, on my advance move for the Rhino. 
And that kind of that that extra movement, I was able to clip a, a talent master like in the far corner. And he's like, boy, I didn't think you'd get that far. And I said, honestly, I probably wouldn't have had I not gotten that six, you know, a high advance roll on the Rhinos move. So people definitely were caught off guard. But honestly, I only used that double move maybe maybe once to set up a power play. It's more just the threat range. And uh, people really do respect all those multi-meltas when they have uh, vehicles. And it really helps keep things that normally could could uh, give me trouble back, uh, depending on the opponent that is. How much is that dev squad with four multi-meltas? What does that set you back? Uh, 175 points with the cherub. And it kind of is cool because it's essentially six multi-meltas that are going to be hitting on fours since they moved. And then four multi-melta shots hitting on threes because of the signum that the the squad leader has. Um, what's also cool about white scars is there's an advance and shoot heavy heavy weapons as assault strat that uh, bait and white scars shoot uh, advance and shoot without penalty. So I can make one unit hitting on twos and threes, which really ups the efficiency a lot. Geez, yeah, that's pretty pretty wild. You can put out some pretty good volume with those four melt melters in that squad. Don't discount that cherub, baby. Brad, why don't you go ahead and, and uh, recount the list here of uh, the Necron list that Marshall took there that made the top eight? He had a different list. He had a lot of obsec here. Really strong list, very tight play. He watched a little bit of it through the weekend. He really utilized that that obsec. He had Eternal Conquerors on it. He ran a <clears throat> excuse me, Locust Lord, Overlord, Technomancer, and then he ran four units of Immortals. Two ten mans, or sorry, two nine mans and two five mans had the obligatory crypto thralls. I'm not even sure you're allowed to make a uh, Necrons list without it just auto populating those crypto thralls for you for those actions in the bodyguard. And then he had two nine man units of Lichguard, a six man unit of Scorpec destroyers, a transcendent Satan because they look awesome. And then three units of three scarabs. So just a ton of obsec and some very durable units. Those at Lichgard unit is very, very annoying to take to take off the board. Uh, and especially with everything being obsec, you can pull some real shenanigans with that. So in what mission were you playing this <clears throat> in the neck round? What was the, the round of eight first round? What was the mission? In, the uh, mission was vital intelligence, and it was one of the more brilliant. challenging missions for my army going into an all obsec pre-game moving necron army especially i mean for everybody that doesn't look at that once you if for vital intelligence once you take an objective that objective is yours until your opponent takes it from you so that's a huge deal with an army that's all obsec like that that can take the board especially with those scarab moves and stuff like that so for sure a tough matchup for you what were your first thoughts going into the game as far as your game plan and how you thought things would play out? Uh, my first thoughts were I knew it was going to be challenging because of, like we said, the pregame moving obsec Necrons. And uh, my first thought was, boy, it's going to be an uphill battle if he gets to go first and jumps on jumps on some of these objectives. And of course, he went first and jumped on the objectives. My initial kind of game plan was going to be see what kind of firing angles I can get with my terrain placement. Um, I specific, I was lucky enough to win the roll-off, so I got my first big terrain piece kind of exactly where I needed it to go. 
And um, I was able to set up a point on vital intelligence where I could be on the home objective with my three dreadnoughts and clearly shoot one, two, three other three other objectives so that he actually could only really hide uh, from two objectives. Very nice. What did you take uh, secondary-wise? Secondary-wise, I took engage in all fronts, I took no prisoners, and I took uh, retrieve Octarius data. Gotcha. And what did you, what did you end up scoring in each one? Because we'll kind of delve into the, the secondary choices uh, in the second part. And in, in my favorite part, the and we, what we call the Brad part of the cast. But what were you, excuse me, the what Brad did you hour. Do, The Brad hour, exactly. What did you uh, score on each one of those secondaries? So I maxed out my Retrieve Octarius data for 12. No Prisoners, I think, ended up at 12 or 13. And my Engage was probably around there, too. I don't have the exact numbers off the top of my head. Gotcha. That's a big number on each of those, though. So, yeah, for sure. What was the, do you remember the final, I can look right now, but the final score of the game. And while you're looking up that, I was watching the game whenever, uh, actually live as it happened. And uh, one of the things that really stuck out to me was his his pressure that he put on you and the sheer fact that you can hold it and just take it on the board. I think that really was a big factor in the game for you just because he was able to deny you so early on on primary yeah, I didn't even go for I didn't even go for primary going into turn 2. I knew I couldn't get it. I knew I knew he was going to get a 15 on primary no matter what I had done. Uh, my plan was after his first movement phases, he had actually given me a lot of targets and I was actually able to line up all three dreadnoughts into his lich guard unit and I've played against lich guard in the past with these dreadnoughts and if you can Give them the reroll ones to hit from con, and then spend a CP um, to give uh, one of the dreadnoughts lieutenant aura uh, with with one dreadnought ignoring cover and hitting on twos, rerolling ones to hit and wound. You actually can pick up a quite a few quite a few lich guard. So um, I had peppered him with one with one dreadnought and killed three, and I'm like, okay, this is about the point where one dreadnought actually can put. 11 to 12 saves on 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 him and cause some mortal wounds and maybe he won't even get to reanimate but unfortunately i just didn't do enough and that dreadnought only killed one so that was kind of what i was going for in my turn one looking back over it would would you change any of the target priority there did you have any line of sight for the scarabs and things of that nature you know i did have line of sight for the scarabs and i knew the scarabs were in position to contest my primary um going into round two but since i didn't actually go on to many like any objectives my first turn it didn't really matter and i really wanted to take advantage of one of my dreadnoughts being ap1 ignore cover into his lich guard and he had some lich guard outside of cover so i was really hoping to benefit from the devastator doctrine round one into the lich guard and honestly, it was such a good target. Um, I think had I shot both Dreadnoughts into it first and then hoped that I could still see with my third Dreadnought that was hitting on twos, maybe that would have been enough. I was just worried he would reanimate behind behind a piece of behind obscuring terrain and not be able to see. So that's why I actually shot 
the second one into six, hoping to get, you know, get the job done with that. No, that makes sense because when you have that minus one AP, I mean you're not gonna you're not gonna get a better a better time to shoot the dreads into the big tasty armor target. So I I, I kind of agree. I think that was probably a a decently smart move there to go into the lich guard instead of the scarabs. But Brad, what do you what do you think on that? Because I know obviously you have scarabs that are fast and they're going to be contesting you all game. It's, it's a tough choice. I'm tell you the truth. I mean I I didn't see that that part of the game. Uh, it's it's always tough because you, you're you're kind of auto killing the scarabs but you never have a better chance to kill lich guard in that particular mission obviously because of devastator doctrine so it's it's a it's a very it's a really tough choice you know what i mean so either way that you picked it probably not wrong i'm i'm such a pessimist i always go for my auto kills so that's all i do did you did you feel like later in the game that the scarabs cost you like do you feel like killing them early game would have given you a benefit later game on primary to be honest, the scarabs didn't really have that much of a factor because I wasn't on objectives at the end of my round two. Um, I had to pivot quickly going uh, my second turn. Not Really, I only actually killed like five Lich Guard, and then he decided to kind of turn run away, and, and he eventually uh, used his gate of a, you know, gate ability to gate them away. But the necro or the scarabs, I ended up just killing that second turn. He had kind of exposed one to slow down my rhino, um, so I assaulted that, and then and then his other two units, he had kind of put on objectives that I were going to be going that I was going to be going on anyways. One unit I shot off uh, pretty easily, and then the other unit I assaulted. But again, I was going to be on that objective anyways. So the scarabs themselves weren't that big of a deal. Had so, it, would it have been nicer to kill them a turn earlier, considering I didn't actually do that much to Lich Guard? Sure. Do I think I would sh- change my strategy going again? I don't really know because you don't get a ton of opportunities to shoot Lich Guard um, with Volkite at AP1. And it's one of the best things to actually pick them up. I think what I would have done differently is shoot the two non-buffed dreadnoughts into the lich guard first to see what it did and if my third lost line of sight then i could have actually drawn you know like shot into like a unit of scarabs and probably one of the immortal units and just picked up two easy units then if nothing else it's probably what i should have done that's smart i I agree with that i think that's a really good insight what was your overall plan going in because you didn't want to just run up there, obviously. What was your, what was the overall game plan after he got first turn and started taking stuff? Yeah, my game plan was to um, kill. Basically, he his list was really interesting because he had a lot of a good amount of melee, um, and he chose to split up his bricks of lich guard on each flank, and then one of it, then his far flank had uh, had a unit of Scorpac destroyers. So I kind of knew after he deployed in his first movement that I wanted to try to cripple the other flank and kind of flip the deployment zone and turn it turn it to hammer and anvil because on hammer and anvil there was really no line of sight blocking to the major to most of the objectives. Um, I think the player place terrain actually hurt his army up against me quite a bit, and the mission because all of the all of the objectives were right on the center line. 
the mission and the player place terrain really hurt him because he didn't have much shooting. And it benefited me because I could basically shoot for five turns and not really get a lot of, a lot of shots back at me. When you look at this matchup across the board, let's say, let's take the mission out of it completely. If you look at this army, do you think this is a bad matchup for your white scar list? I think it's a a matchup that might cause me to score a little bit lower because they can contest my primary easily. But had it been on any of like the hold one, hold two missions, I'm still not that worried because I always have pretty solid secondaries into, you know, into him. And uh, I, I can still generally guarantee at least five points, if not 10. Um, but in this mission, it was rough. I would say normally I'm not really that worried about Necrons. And, you know, had I been a little bit more aggressive turn two, I think that might have been enough. But Marshall is a really good player. He played it really well. And uh, I just didn't get enough steam. You know, I didn't get enough steam going uh, in the early rounds. And he capitalized by getting, you know, 25 uh, primary points the first you know, the first two opportunities to score it. You so, mentioned that you didn't go hard enough into him on turn two. Where, what would you have done? Like, so you, you had killed some stuff with your, uh, like you said, like five or six Lich Guard, and then turn two you had killed, I think you said some Scarabs. What would have, what would you, what do you feel like would have been the best play there aggressively? Uh, so I didn't mention this, but when I, when, during deployment, Typically into Necrons, now this used to be when they had the 20 Warriors, but it also would apply to, uh, you know, his big brick of Scorpex and most definitely the Lich Guard. I decided to keep one unit of Vanguard veterans together because that way, if they are fully buffed and, and two damage, I can I can kill, kill him in one activation, uh, any of those big units. I can kill them in one activation, then he won't get... Uh, he wouldn't get his reanimation. So I had a big 10-man unit, and I believe my turn two, uh, they didn't roll very far on their run. And so I opted to just charge two, like two scarabs just to kill them. And I honestly feel like I should have either re-rolled the advance roll or or pushed really hard anyways and just not assaulted towards, towards his objective or towards his uh, part of the deployment zone where only the wounded Lich Guard unit was and the C-Tan. I was a little bit more worried about the C-Tan than I should have been. Had he assaulted my bigger unit, which he could have nickeled and dimed a little bit, it would have, it would have hurt. But then I would have actually gotten, um, you know, it's kind of a guaranteed three damage because he's not going to kill all of me anyways. And that was one of his uh, to the last uh, units. So it would have just made it that much easier to kill later on. What were his two last units? So it was the Satan and the two blocks of Lich Guard, I guess. Correct. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, no, that I think that's a great insight, also. So because you you have this big unit that you're pretty invested in in your in your list with the ten man Vanguard, and I think pushing them forward and getting them as 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 in his zone as possible to get to return would would be good. It's always done well for me into Necrons in general. When I used to run 30 Vanguard veterans, I used to actually do it twice. But since I've added more shooting, cutting down to 25, I didn't think I could really afford to do that. 
and I needed one unit. I basically sacrificed it one unit just to get my retrieve Octarius data, which again, that four points was nice, but maybe I should have, you know, just deployed that unit and used it as another an, another unit that could push onto his objectives early as opposed to just, you know, retrieving and then getting shot off the board. So do you feel like the t- the point where it turned for you was one and two when he just got those 25? And that, that's hard to come back from, especially with an army that has so much obsec. You feel like you just kind of were fighting an uphill battle after that, just on the primary? Yeah, I was for sure. I knew I was going to have a little bit of an advantage on the secondaries. So I just wanted to get the primary close within... I kind I kind of figured he was going to get a 45, and my goal is to get a 35. And I had made one push into into a lord and i think it was like three warriors and i couldn't quite kill the lord the first turn and so that really it it kind of just sealed the deal where it's like okay i'm only getting a five on primary my next turn no, no matter what and and he's getting another good primary score so to to say i was definitely behind the eight ball because of going second and how and how it kind of played out, it definitely, it definitely was an uphill battle. But I think, had I been a little bit more aggressive, even just that second turn, um, it would have made it a lot more close because it was a 19-point game, and there was, there was just small, there was, you know, a few turns where, I, if I could have just held him to a 15 primary from a, you know to a 10 primary and then got myself a 10 primary a turn earlier, it would have been a lot closer, I think. Do you think that if you would have been, we talked about it a little bit already, but if you went to specifically to the side that he was lighter on the side, you know, the, the side away from the destroyers a turn early, especially because of the fact that he had such little shooting, uh, you, if you could even set up right in front of it, was that an option uh, to try to basically limit some of those primary points for him and score yourself a few? The one thing I could have done is been a little bit more aggressive with my tech Marine and with my obsec, and then kind of tried to contest some of his objectives. But turn one, it would have been pretty much impossible for me to get on onto the, the, the two objectives with obsec, just because the tech Marine is pretty slow. And then he would have had decent counterpunch into me. And his shooting, the the uh, Immortals actually throw out a good amount of shooting. He picked up three and a half Immortals in cover with, I think, one, one or two units uh, one of his turns, like his turn three. And it that kind of surprised me a little bit, how how much shooting they can do because there's all sorts of different buffs that, that you can put th- on them, like, I think it's like all sixes to hit do an extra they either auto wound or do an extra hit. It was it was impressive the amount of uh saves he made me take. Yeah, those uh, those destroyers can put out some the destroyers, right? Or the what are they called? The immortals. Is that right? Immortals or immortals. the troops he had? No, the troops. So he had four squads of five. Or sorry. He had two fives and two nines. So he had a, a decent amount of volume because those are all two shot weapons. Man, uh so it Whenever you were going into the bottom of five, because you had second turn, did, did you set yourself up to score a big primary there? I had a play to get 15 on primary. It was tight, and I was running out of time. My 
my play was to double move a rhino onto an objective. And it's funny. He looked around. He's like, uh, at, at the start of his turn, he's like, oh, it looks like you're only going to be able to get a 10. And I said, well, actually, I can. I have the two, I'll have two CP at the top of my turn. I'll be able to double move. Like, I had a few options to double move onto this one, one objective to kind of get me to get me my, my 15 on primary. And he's like, oh, I need to try to get something there then. And I said, yes. And he didn't have a ton to do it with. He basically had one immortal unit, and it had to roll a six. He rolled the six. He got on there, and I did ask him. I said, did you need the six to get onto that objective? And he measured. He's like, yes, I did. So I could have gotten a 15 my last yeah. round had he not rolled that. Um, I still had an opportunity to shoot him with two dreadnoughts and shoot those immortals off with like with you know reroll ones to hit. It just it just wasn't in the cards. Like I've seen a unit one Volkite completely kill like a full like ten man Thousand Suns Terminator unit, and then you have two Volkites that can't kill you know eight eight Necron Immortals. It just it it they're very swingy units. Yeah, because you don't have that stability of like AP and uh, all that jazz. So if you're you're really relying on those spike and sixes a lot of times or failed saves. Exactly. One last question here for you before we jump into the Q&A here. Uh, this is something that's frequently been asked by a lot of our listeners. When you sit down and you think about a game, you think about what went wrong, like what went wrong in a game, walk us through your process on like from point A to point B. Like how do you analyze a game after you're finished? Yeah, that's a really good question because, you know, I was uh, really happy to make make, you know, the finals the third day and get to play. And so when things didn't quite go my way, I wasn't really beating myself up about it. And it was probably a few hours later and I was just sitting and I was thinking um, the first thing that came to mind was just, I wasn't quite aggressive enough into this opponent. And sometimes it just takes a few hours to take a step back. Again, I wasn't beating myself up over it or anything else about, you know, I didn't get down on the loss. I tried to stay positive and, um, I did see a win, a win condition kind of the whole time, uh, but I knew it would be tight. But after it didn't happen, I didn't kind of get down. I just, you know, said, well, good game. And uh, then kind of marinated on everything. And, yeah, I just kind of look. I think the the first couple turns are are can be the most important, at least in this last game. They were the most important turns in the game for me. Other time in other games that that might not be the case because you have to be really technical and make all the right decisions down the stretch. But in this case, I do think I lost the game or or set myself up for a much harder game because of my my turn one movement. That man, that's awesome, and that's that's something that I feel like all the like elite people we've talked to on this show really have in common. You know, they talk about you know just the going back and not beating yourself up, you know, keeping a positive attitude and talking about, you know, it's really thinking about what could I have changed. And it sounds like that's exactly what yeah. you did here. It's, and it's such a big deal though, because that's how you, that's the whole reason for the podcast, but also it's just how most of us play on that. Or when you think about it, because you don't learn from wins most of the time, you learn from the losses because you really dwell on those and you think about what I could have done and try not to make those same mistakes and tell you the truth. Deployment, I call it turn zero. Turn zero and turn one are 
a lot of times just the, the deciding factors. If you're not in position for what you need to do, a lot of times it doesn't matter after that because you always feel like you're a turn behind. So realizing the, the errors and basically getting ready for the next game. That's how you basically keep, continue to grow and move forward. Oliver, we have uh, we have a little Q&A that we do from our War Room members over on Facebook. Uh, we have a couple questions from them for you, if you don't mind. Uh, answer a couple of these for us. Just a reminder for everyone out there listening, the, the War Room is available at theartofwar40k.com. It's our private Facebook group where you can ask all the questions you want for our podcast. We have coaches out live every single day of the week giving clinics about different topics on the game. We have coaching games where the top players such as Nick Nanavati, John Lennon, Brad Chester, uh, Richard Siegler, Mark Perry, all those guys, they pit, pit against each other and they walk you through the plays they would make. So just something to check out. It's the War Room at theartofwar40k.com. And also as a perk of that, we have a Q&A every week for this podcast. Our first question this week comes from Jason Brown. And I'm going to go ahead and say this is not a question. because Well, it is a question, but it's a question we're going to address in part two. But I'm going to go ahead and say it and get Jason primed for part two. He asked, I'd love to hear what units he has or is thinking about bringing into his list moving forward in the upcoming Drakari, Admech, Orc-saturated meta. And I'm going to tell you right now, that is going to be a hot topic in part two. Brad's going to absolutely go crazy on it. So join us for the Brad Hour here All shortly. over this, baby. I'm already excited. And his other thing is, he says, I find myself wondering if this could be the rise of the heavy onset Gatling cannons, maybe even gladiator reapers and he's curious on what we have to say about it and i think brad might have some opinions on that also so we'll 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 i'll leave it to him on that part two there our second question which is something that i think we can have oliver answer for us right here now comes from owen bistol he says did he feel like going so hard into contemptors hurt him in any of his matchups did he feel like he missed having troops or did the speeders play that role well enough yeah, I am of the opinion as of right now, Space Marines have only a few units holding them up, one of them being the Volkite Contemptors. If I could have four, I would have four. They are typically that good for me. So I do find that not having OBSEC has hurt a little bit, but in most of my games, it hasn't mattered. Typically, you're either on the objective and you kill your opponent off, or you're not on the objective and you get killed off. The OBSEC in most of my games has not come up. Nice. Awesome. Thanks for joining us, Oliver. You've been a fantastic guest, and I look forward to talking to you about all the fun stuff in part two during the Brad Hour. We'll do a deep dive into the episode, drop a jar in the Steve Joel deep dive jar. I'm Um, so impressed with you. I think that was the first deep dive of the episode. Who are you? it was intentional. It was the intentional deep. I had to give Steve one for the episode. So there it is, Steve. Uh, enjoy that. I want you to really bask in it. For all y'all listening, make sure to check us out. The Art of War's other podcast. We have The Art of War Down Under with Adam Camilleri. We have The Art of War Vanilla with Tim Penny and John Lennon. We are The Art of War Unbroken, which in my opinion is the pistachio of the Art of War family. Like, you don't know if you like it. You try it and you love it. You know, it's. I think that's, I think that's the best way to describe us. Um, but check it out, theartofwar40k.com. Check out all the podcasts. Check out our YouTube, fa- our YouTube, Facebook. Check out our coaching service. Check out the War Room on there. And we got all kinds of different things on there. We got some merchandise. I think you can buy some objective markers with Nick's face on them. All kinds of things. And make sure to join us for part two of this podcast coming up here shortly. Thanks for listening. 
Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War and the Art of War Down Under podcast on the competitive 40K network. The Art of War 40K.com.